Welcome to the Sports Business Commute here on the program. I'm Michael Mankus, joined as always by Professors Daniel McIntosh and Christopher Lee from the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. It's a bittersweet day. Today is the, uh, I guess I shouldn't say final, it's the penultimate episode <laughs> of the Sports Business Commute. And in classic Chris Lee fashion, we're going to talk a little bit about the linguistic roots of the word penultimate. I'm Professor just wondering Lee. what... Why is that a thing? What does it mean? I think Bic should have it. it they should have the penultimate. And why would you ever use that? Bic pen. Ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> would it be the ultimate pen, though? Dad jokes. Go ahead. <laughs> so the origin is P-A-E-N-E. Pene? Pene? Latin. Meaning or almost, almost. And then ultimus is last. So it's the almost last so wait, episode. Ultimus means last? Yeah. In Latin? I know, but so if, like, you're the ultimate, does that mean you're that's last? That's why it's that's kind confusing. Of this whole, that's why this whole term is confusing and why you would use it. And if it all if it means almost last, why couldn't our third from last be the penultimate? Because that's almost last. Too. So is ultimate Frisbee last Frisbee? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Frisbee's a Latin term. That's fair, but we kind of just jumbled those two together. And why, are we, why do you celebrate the second to last of anything? I mean, well, or, I, don't, I don't think we're really a, celebrating this. This is kind of a sad occasion. <laughs> with a special word, though. Why can't we just say second to last? I mean, you, you still have created a term, though, for second to last. Is there a term from, for third to last? Hold on. So there's the primary market and the secondary market. Uh-huh. Are you arguing there should be the primary <laughs> market and the other market? Yes. I like that. It's too confusing. <laughs> too confusing. <laughs> wow. Chris Lee in favor of simplifying language. Or actually, you know what? He he's not in favor of simplifying language. He's in favor of making words easy. I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> I like that. Not opposed. That's but not I don't think penultimate was designed to mean second from last. We've just taken it and made it second to last. It's I don't think almost the last. I mean, but but most of our oh, language is borrowed from Latin. It doesn't mean it's directly translated from Latin. Sure. So I mean, you got to keep that in mind. I guess is my point. So like you know, penultimate. Being a word, it's a it's a word created from a term borrowed from Latin, sure. right? It's it's devised from la- two Latin words. It isn't a direct translation. You see that a lot with a lot of the English language. Actually, mm-hmm. it's very much a uh, uh, a mutt of a language. It's a combination of the Germanic languages as well as the Romantic languages. You see a lot of uh, Latin and English. You also see a lot of Spanish and some French as well. Fun N- facts. Nonetheless, here is our second to last. Episode. Shrinking venues, huh? <laughs> well, no, that's the thing. In typical Chris Lee fashion, we're talking yeah, about venues like in this episode. We might have to make this my last episode. You guys can have the... <laughs> yeah, the want to the... end on a venue note? That's, that's a good way to end. Oh, man, you were just looking for an excuse to stop recording with us, aren't you? No, but I feel like if I was going to go out... <laughs> this would be the way? Yeah, like you go out winning a championship, you go out talking about venues on a podcast <laughs> would be my way to... <laughs> All right, so a recent article in Sports Business Journal listed the shrinking... Or not listed, but kind of defined or talked a little bit about the shrinking venue across major American sports, most and not just major professional sports, but major collegiate sports as well. Many stadiums in the United States are reducing their capacity or simply making certain seats unavailable for people to sit in. A big example, this is Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Florida, or the Tampa Bay area, uh, reduces their capacity to 25,000 people, 25,000 fans, completely closed off the upper deck to fans for Tampa Bay Rays games. Well, you know, I, we've talked a little bit about media in the past, and, I, and I'm not surprised by this, you know, quite frankly. The media audience dominates in terms of revenue and, and reach. Uh, the more exclusive we make these things, the more we can charge, right? So right. Uh, I think we talked about the third venue a, a couple of months ago when we talked about 
uh, the concept of not being able to go to a game, not wanting to watch it alone at home. So you go to a bar, you go to a movie theater, you go to some uh, social gathering to consume these sports. So I think there's a lot of dynamics that are at play. And then you add on for something like baseball, right, Tropicana Field. Uh, I think the ASU baseball team last weekend played a a five-and-a-half-hour baseball game. That's just too much. Yeah, sure. It's too much. And so the the concept is, I think it even says in the article, it's like the beer is always cold, the lines are always short, and you don't have to pay for parking. Mm-hmm. Like, in short, stay home. Sure. And in Tampa's case, I, I've never been there, but I don't get the sense that that's the best experience ever in a domed uh, venue. Just to add some statistics, MLB average game attendance of 28,830 in 2018, down from just over 30,000. So you're looking at a little over 1,000 fewer fans. I think it's the lowest game. attendance they've had in quite some time. I and mean, this is not unique. I think uh, CBS Sports came out and said college football had the lowest attendance in 22 years. Yeah. And many stadiums are adjusting just in Tempe here. You know, Sun Devil Stadium reduced their capacity from 71,000 in what, like 2014? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. To now adjust a hair over 55,000 at the end of renovations, over a 22.5% decrease in capacity just by completely eliminating certain seats, not even closing them off, just eliminating them entirely. And, and frankly, it's probably still too big. You know what I mean? Yeah. For for the, the audience that we're attracting. And, and when we talk about, I think there was a really cool line in there. They talk about just the concept of these multi purpose facilities. Hmm. What other event is going to attract? 56,000 people. Right. So it's really hard to hold a concert there and to make sure. it feel intimate or to make it feel sold out or to have great acoustics even. Like, all of those things go out the window. And the average MLB attendance at whatever, 28,800 is also biased, too. I mean, you on a Wednesday night game, you're not getting anywhere near that. And so you have to balance, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day interest in the sport versus those peak games Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's just an average attendance. So when you look at teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers that put 45,000 people in the seats every night, you look at like the St. Louis Cardinals who are in a very strong baseball market. You know, they put 40,000, you know, 35 to 40,000 seats every night. We talk about Tropicana Field reducing their capacity to 25,000. It's because Tropicana Field and the Rays were only drawing about 15,000 fans a game last season. Well, Miami had, I think, 10 is what they were drawing. So just the state of Florida is so much competition for what they're trying to do, all of the colleges, all of the events, all of the things you can do in Florida. It's a hard market, so I completely understand their their thinking. Yeah, I'd be interested in looking at attendance like the bottom third of teams and their Monday through Thursday average attendance, and it's probably not real pretty. Brutal. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely brutal. I remember... Um, so I grew up in St. Louis, so I never really had a whole lot of opportunities to go to, to games at empty baseball stadiums, but I did go to a Kansas City Royals game in about 2007, right? And this was like at the nadir of the Royals, you know, just pitiful, pitiful play. I mean, the I think the listed attendance or the announced attendance was like, you know, 19,000. There couldn't have been more than about 6,000 people there. Sure. Now, admittedly, this was weeknight, but still, 6,000 people for a Major League Baseball game? I mean, and, and this, uh, this lowered attendance, both lowered paid attendance and lowered in-person attendance, this is a trend we see across many different sports. The only sport that you're not really seeing that trend in is the NBA. And even there, the, the live attendance is not is kind of stagnant from what I remember. Yeah, and, and, uh, but we've talked about, right, the, the media experience is so much better. And, you know, when we talk about all of the costs, we, I, I listed some of the costs being, you know, financial, mm-hmm. but the time expenses for sure. these things. And, you know, I look at something, uh, there was a really cool article 
uh, I think it was in the Daily Buzz today, that was talking about the Mountain West is getting ready to sign their media rights deal. Hmm. And they're saying, you know what, we will take less money if you let us dictate when we kick off. Because they come through and they say, if huh? we have 9 o'clock kickoffs like they have in the Pac-12, yeah. we lose all of our future fans. Sure. Kids can't go. Students don't stay. And, the, and their concept is, if those people don't go to the games, don't have those amazing experiences, sure. the likelihood of donating in 15 years is gone. And so they said, what's the trade-off? And I think that's an important thing. I think a lot of these uh, events have kind of sold their souls sure. to the media dollar. And even, I mean, you look at like an MLB schedule, again, going back to kind of that Sunday through Thursday or Monday through Thursday schedule. I mean, people live different lives on Monday through Thursday. I mean, you've got school and then you drive, whatever, 45 minutes an hour to the game or half hour, watch a three and a half hour baseball game and then go home. I mean, if you got kids, that's, that's a tough thing to do. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, they were doing an article on Maricopa. And how seven years ago it was a ghost town. They had all of these underdeveloped houses. And now this is where our generation, Chris's generation, my generation are moving. Because that's where affordable housing is. Mm-hmm. And they will trade 45 minute to an hour commutes for affordable housing. Sure. Well, factor that you have 45 minutes to work, 45 minutes back home to pick up the kids, then 45 minutes back to the game. You're right. talking, you have, you know, what, two and a half hours that you're in the car. Are you talking like the town of Maricopa, south yes. of Maricopa County? Yes. Okay, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a drive. It's a haul. <laughs> and yet, housing is very affordable. But that's the con- – like, there's just so many cool dynamics that are happening, right? We're seeing this – I think right. they call them exurbs is what they called it. So not quite the suburbs, but exurbs even further. Um, and that's where a lot of the kind of up-and-coming generation is. And in this article, a lot of the ones they cite are new constructions that drastically reduced the size of the venue or a couple of remodels. In ASU's case, they cut off, like, literally – demolish the upper deck. Right. Um, but some of these, they're just basically taking out seats and re-engineering the square footage that they have. Like Cleveland Indians took out roughly 5,000 seats out in right field, turned that into kind of a bar, uh, family-friendly area. So we're not necessarily decreasing the size of the venues in terms of square footage or it, its kind of imprint in the, the community or the city. Uh, we're just reducing the seats within that, that venue. And I guess if you're not going to be selling your your whatever that 5,000 extra seats were, what was the number in Cleveland? Did, uh, did you have that number? Just, yeah, not in here, but I'm, I, th- I think they're one of the they're one of the smaller parks in Major League Baseball, and they still I mean they actually did a pretty good job of selling those seats. But sure. so I mean I don't know if Cleveland is the best example because they've had a really strong fan base in, in terms of like in person attendance. But I mean you look at like Oakland as the example. How many people fit in the Oakland Coliseum? Too many. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we talk about like the Raiders have trouble selling that out right. for eight days a year. How are the athletics supposed to do 81? Well, Oakland at one point, the center field, out to center field was open and you could see into kind of the Oak, Oakland Hills. And then the Raiders came to town. They built what they called Mount Davis, which is this huge three or four story thing out in center field, which isn't a great view for a baseball game when you're four levels up out in center field. Turns out you can't see a whole lot. Uh, so the A's, it seems like every couple of years they go back and forth, but they've had several seasons where they just tarp off the entire upper deck. Recently, they opened it again, talking about kind of fan affordability and access, um, letting more fans in. But it's a tough uh, challenge. A couple other things that this article noted that I thought were interesting is, one, it's starting to have effects on building codes, uh, you know, regulations of one seat per person that, you know, if – if you're buying a ticket to a game that in a lot of ways buys you the right to a seat 
but we're kind of re-looking um, at what those regulations are and what that means when you buy a ticket. I think what's interesting there is, you know, you have like the Warriors Game Pass, right? Isn't that what mm-hmm. they're calling it? Yeah. yeah. You know, that, pass or so, whatever, what, yeah. And then it guarantees you entry into the building but doesn't guarantee you a seat. Which if you've been to that venue, you can't even see anything. I mean, it's one of the older style venues where you basically can't see the court unless you have a seat. Uh, <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Well, I think what's really interesting, you know, and I, what I really like about this just from a pure design perspective, and not, this has nothing to do with the business. I am just so happy that the multi-purpose ballpark is going away. I, I, I think it is – I don't think it's conducive to a positive baseball viewing experience, especially when you talk about, you know, being way up in the upper deck in Mount Davis, mm-hmm. right, you know, and at the Oakland Coliseum. I'm really happy to see kind of the more uh, retro modern ballparks. I mean Camden Yards in Baltimore was the original and now you've got uh, other parks like PNC Park and AT&T Park, which has a – in San Francisco – which doesn't I guess is it still AT and T Park? It's not, it just changed. It just changed. It's um, I don't Oracle. Know, I think it might be Oracle. Yeah. But I was gonna add, that was gonna be my follow up is name your favorite ballpark and mine was gonna be for what used to be called AT and T. Sure, I had an amazing experience when I was there. Because here's here's a great thing about those those stadiums. One, they're built in a way that is that is fan friendly, right? That's easy to get around. But two, the views are really good. And three. And I, I mean, you can argue this for some of the ballparks, but there really aren't any bad seats, like truly bad seats in those ballparks compared to like, you know, the, the cavernous multi-purpose ballparks and huge 50,000 seat MLB stadiums. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at like Chase Field, right, in Phoenix, and you go all the way up to the top sections in right field and you're like, oh, God, this is not a positive viewing experience. Well, and, and Chris can attest this. My biggest frustration with Chase Field is the angle of the seats. Mm-hmm. And so if you try and host a concert, you try and host WrestleMania or what was it? The, the Royal, uh, Royal Rumble. Rumble. Like they designed it and you're like, oh, okay, they'll put the field in where second base would be. And you were having to like l- – your like left shoulder blade could be on the seat <laughs> and your right shoulder blade was just floating with right. something stabbing you in the back sure. so that you were like actually facing it. Yeah, which I mean in principle and in design for a baseball game works great. But when you start to go into this kind of multi, multi-modal or entertainment venue, it becomes different. It's interesting to think about the evolution, to your point, Michael, of, of venues. That we went from largely kind of baseball stadiums being for baseball. Then we went to this kind of combo football-baseball era, which seemingly didn't work real well. Now we're going kind of back to sports-specific venues, but building them to incorporate other non-sports events to a certain extent. And I think that's what makes stadiums like, you know, Bush Stadium in St. Louis is a good example, AT&T Park. You can host things other than baseball at those stadiums. You can't really host things like concerts. I mean, you can, but it's uncomfortable for fans. You can't do that at Chase Field because those are venues designed specifically for baseball and nothing else. Compare that to, like, say, Bush Stadium or AT&T Park or PNC Park in Pittsburgh, which are designed with baseball in mind as and baseball is the main attraction, but with other events could be used there. And I mean, this comes back to, you know, Chris Lee's love for using venues more than just the days of the year where there are games going on. So when I was, I, I got really fortunate. I was able to tour Nike uh, with a friend of mine, Rich Ramsey, and, and he works in a department called Universal Design. And I didn't understand what that meant. And he kind of explained it to me. And he goes, we want things that are so well-designed even if they were originally purposed for, say, somebody with one arm or one leg, that everyone goes, that's just better. 
Mm-hmm. Why don't we have that? And I think that's what we should think about with ballparks. Like, sure. why would we not have a seat where we go, yeah, that's just better. <laughs> like, we should just design yeah. it that way. Sure. That just makes more sense. And I think that's why you're seeing kind of the shift to the smaller stadiums is because, especially with Major League Baseball teams, having a lot of trouble with filling up the upper decks of their stadiums looks terrible on TV. Sounds terrible because what ends up happening is when these stadiums are so tall, any cheering from the fans just goes straight up into the sky. The MLB teams understand this, and I think other teams are understanding this too. I think another example that you brought up was uh, so yeah, in Milwaukee, the BMO Harris, uh, the BMO Harris Bradley Center seated uh, twenty thousand, right? Uh, uh, that's a lot of basketball fans. And now after renovation, uh, or, or the, uh, the, new, the, the new stadium, the Fisery Forum, going on, only going to hold seventeen thousand. So, I mean, right there, that's a 15% decrease for what should be one of the hottest properties in basketball, mm-hmm. assuming that Giannis stays, which it sounds like he might. But that's a topic for another day, which the, I guess uh, is going to have to be the next one. I don't know how. We'll see. It's interesting, though, because, you know, this article talks about the shrinking venue, and it was, I don't know, maybe Daniel would know, too, maybe two or three years ago where Dell and Ware North came out with the future of sport, maybe four or five yep. years ago at this yep. point. But when they talked about venues, they talked about the future of venue, if I recall correctly, was it was going to be bigger. Like two hundred thousand, and it was going to be part sort of well, so uh, Disneyland venue, kid friendly zone, etc. So what they envision, and, and perhaps we could still have this, they envision more like a theme park. Right. Okay. And so it wasn't necessarily that it got bigger and all of a sudden it seats a hundred thousand people. Sure. It was that it was inside of this bigger anchor environment. That's and kind of so yeah, you could go and there was a theme park. You mm-hmm. go, there's a movie theater, and it was so it was just. It was one of the attractions, mm-hmm. not the attraction. And I, I think that's kind of a clever methodology to think about how could we better leverage these spaces. I think a good example of this is for those of you who have been to Phoenix before, and I think it's not a perfect example, but you see a lot of the Cactus League stadiums in conjunction with other local businesses. Scottsdale Stadium is a good example, um, very close to downtown Scottsdale. Sloan Park, where the Cubs play, uh, is essentially attached to Mesa Riverview. There are hotels, uh, there are shopping now it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hall, but it's close. It's not just it's not just this stadium in the middle of nothing. Right. Or in the case of, or even worse, in the case of um, some of the stadiums in the Cactus League, this stadium in the middle of the suburbs. But in terms of like making it a a tourist attraction, right? It's no longer annoying to drive out to well, driving to Camelback Ranch is annoying. But driving to Sloan Park, you're like, okay, but I could eat food at Riverview. We could go see a movie. Like, you carve out a day and you can do all of the stuff that's around it. Mm -hmm. You go to San Francisco, all of the stuff that's around it, right? It's right next to Embarcadero. It's next to all of these really cool places. Petco Park in San Diego is in the Gaslamp District. Everything that you need is in the Gaslamp District. Bars, restaurants, movie theaters, concert venues. Uh, Currently, I, I believe that Petco Park is actually developing the green space behind the stadium to be used for concert venue as a concert venue. Cool. So really integrating a lot of the options and a lot of really integrating and leveraging the real estate holdings of the Padres and the city of San Diego have to really make that experience better, you know, as opposed to again, stadium, nothing. And I think it's also important to recognize you can't necessarily do these in isolation. So the article talks about the pressure from concerts and those that if you don't have a venue in your city that seats 18,000 people, certain concerts just aren't going to come through your city or logistically it's going to be a lot challenging or the prices are going to be have to be so high the average fan of that particular artist can't afford it. Um, so they also have to consider um, those factors. Mega events that want to come to town, Super Bowls, Final Fours. Granted, you shouldn't 
don't necessarily build a, a stadium to wait 10 years for the Super Bowl to come, but... Tell Los Angeles that. <laughs> so. Los Angeles is going to get a Super Bowl in 2022, like the year after that stadium gets built. Right. And they'll probably get it once every four or five years after, but can't hold Final Fours there. I guess they'll hold national championship games for college college football, but it'll be outdoors so you can't hold basketball there. I've, they've done outdoor basketball games. It'd be risky, but they've done it. They could not. I'm pretty sure Final Four requires indoor stadium, though, doesn't it? Oh, that's negotiable, wouldn't it? If the, it? Let me put it this way. If the dollars was big enough, do you think they'd put a tarp over it? But you could probably figure could, out something. That would be really interesting. I mean, the... Because they played on the, what, the Battle Cruiser. They've played in... Like, I know ASU women's basketball played at Chase Stadium. So they've done the outdoor thing. NBA had preseason outdoor game uh, in Indian Wells, like oh, Palm Springs area, yeah. at the, the tennis facility. That this was, was maybe 10 years ago. They had a disaster where it rained. Because you're like, yeah, what are you going to do when it rains? <laughs> and again, we're talking about the difference between preseason, yeah. preseason and basketball and event. the premier event of college sports. It's true. It's so I think you're probably you're not going to see a Final Four there. And why would you have a Final Four there when you have so many other options around the country, especially with Indianapolis being like the hub for college basketball? Yeah. But when we're talking about these huge venues, how big is it, how big is a Stan World going to be? Whatever they're called, Cronky World, mm-hmm. ninety thousand seats. I mean, it's an outlier. It's not the norm anymore. I don't know if it really ever was. I guess Jerry World is the only venue that really comes close at this point. Well, and I'm thinking of some of the college uh, stadiums like LSU, like Penn State, like Ohio State. They're even struggling. I think in, in the venue article it talks about even the SEC saw one, maybe one and a half percent drop in attendance. Hmm. Right? That's the premier college football. And they're having trouble filling these mammoth places. Yeah, and I think it's... You know, again, also kind of important to think about how we're referencing. It's not necessarily just seats It's in anymore. It's how many can this venue hold that you can still buy a ticket for the right to go, walk around, go to the bar areas, uh, et cetera. And, and one other thing that this uh, um, article mentioned is the idea of it's we're seemingly in an era where stadiums are turning over more rapidly. You know, you look at Texas Rangers is relatively new, and they're getting a new stadium next year. Atlanta Braves was only, what, 20 years old when they got a new one? Yeah. I mean, that's not not just baseball either. The Georgia Dome was only 20 years old. Fun fact about the Georgia Dome, the the bonds to finance the Georgia Dome were 30-year bonds on a stadium that lasted 20 years. Whoops. (laughs) Seemingly, the consumer trends, if you want to call it that, are changing more quickly than the venues can keep up with them, which makes sense. Um but that's coming at a time where cities are less willing to pay for venues. There's sort of an interesting kind of uh, conflict there in terms of these venues are quickly becoming outdated, so to speak. But where's the money coming from? What is the shelf life of a stadium in today's world? And it's almost as if I, I really wish that we had about another six weeks because I feel like we could fill up six weeks worth of material mm-hmm. to talk all about the financing of stadiums from 1990 to present, you know, the New England Patriots nearly moved to Hartford. Yeah. And you look at the stadium financing that would have been done there at the time, unthinkable. Right? Now, cities would have loved that deal. Sure. And yet they're, they're, they're giving out, you know, you're not seeing it very often anymore because cities are getting very, very wise to the fact that financing via bonds, probably not the wisest economic decision. You're probably not going to see the return. Well, and there's even, you know, getting outside the world of sports, one of the things that was really interesting was the Amazon H2. Right, where they said, New York City, we're going to come and we're going to make this thing happen. And then look at the public backlash of all mm-hmm. the tax benefits or whatever they sure. got up in arms about. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing is that 
if the public isn't going to be in favor of a company like Amazon, which would have brought jobs to the area, but getting essentially free real estate and essentially no taxes on the income earned as a result of that that facility, do you think the public's really going to feel any more positively about a sports venue? Mm-hmm. Ugh. And one of the things we talked about is fairness, and we're we're seeing this even with uh, with athletes' pay, right? When the head coach was making twenty five thousand a year, you're like, hey, you're getting a good deal. Now the head coach is getting ten million in some cases, and we say, well, this is now not equitable. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Amazon. They all of a sudden you're not paying billions of dollars in in taxes. That's too far. Yeah, one last kind of point on venues since we're we're talking about them. I think it was Fangraphs did a kind of an interesting study of how far the fan. I think it was baseball. How far, well, obviously, how far is the fan from the field? And as oh. stadiums have evolved, we've gotten further and further from the field because the lower deck tends to be pretty deep. Then you've got two or three levels of you know club seats and suites and whatever. And so, I mean, you think of some of these really old stadiums, Tiger Stadium, et cetera. I mean, you were on top of the field and now you're not. And so combining that with, like you mentioned earlier on of, you know, the, the challenges, the cost, the time of going to the venue, and then you're sitting further than you ever have. You know, is that an enjoyable experience? I mean, look no further than Wrigley field. Uh, have you two been to Wrigley field? I have not. You've not. I've driven past it. Okay. I did a stadium tour. Yeah. It's, it's, I will say it's a, a bit claustrophobic, <laughs> but yeah, you're on top of the action. Mm-hmm. So definitely, uh, I don't know. And, and there's something to be said for Wrigley Field. I mean, Wrigley Field only hosts, I think, 35,000, 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. Fenway Park is small, too. I think Fenway right. Park only has a capacity of 34,000. Sure. So when we're looking at these stadiums, they've had small capacities for years. And I don't think there's really a whole lot. There aren't many more seats you can take out of Wrigley Field sure. without, you know, pretty much tearing away at the foundations. Agreed. So interesting to see how venues have kind of evolved over the past several years and how venues have really shrunk. Mm-hmm. I think, and again, it speaks to, you know, the at-home experience is just so much better. The advent of HDTV was the beginning of the end for these massive mega venues. It had to have been because now I think a perfect example is hockey, right? Watching hockey on TV pre-HDTV was a chore. Now you could argue it's one of the most fun sports to watch because it's so easy to follow what's going on. So I watched the – actually streamed the ASU Quinnipiac. Huh? I don't know how to say that. It's cool. <laughs> uh, and it was a very high-quality stream. Huh? Super engaging. Yeah. And that's the thing is that now you have HDTV is comp- – and like you said, not only are the views better, the views are even more clear than you get at the stadium. Mm-hmm. And the beer is always cold. There's no lines. You don't have to pay for parking. Can't beat it at home. Let me ask you this and maybe this is our, our – This this should be our final thought, yeah. Where uh, where does this bottom out? I mean obviously maybe nobody goes. But let's just say 10 years from now, how big are we building a baseball stadium in your average market? I mean – it's tough to say. If we're talking about the average MLB market, I'm thinking like in Atlanta. Okay. Right? 25,000 seats. I was going to say 20. You think it's going to be a little bit lower? I, I think it'd be 20, and I think virtual reality kills the uh, at-game experience. Okay. I think it's a possibility. I, and, I mean, we've talked before on this uh, on the show, setting up cameras in the seats and selling those virtual – selling those streams from those cameras as virtual reality pay-per-view. It's a possibility. Yeah. If we're talking about MLB, I think twenty to twenty-five thousand in ten years for for an average market. Now, yeah. if you're talking about like, let's say for whatever reason the Dodgers decided to build a new stadium and they wanted sure. to tear down Dodger Stadium, they could still probably do 40, 45, 50,000 seats. But I agree. I think because of the Dodgers, I think twenty to twenty-five. But I mean, that's pretty shocking. I mean, over the last whatever generation of of baseball and and the decline in stadium size. So let me oh. ask what you think the average stadium size would be for say an NBA or NHL arena. 
Currently, we're looking at what about seventeen to eighteen thousand. Yeah, I'd guess fifteen. Yeah, I don't think. I think part of their appeal is concerts and other uses that baseball maybe doesn't inherently have. Uh, so I'd say probably around fifteen. So my argument. Uh, so Winnipeg has the smallest arena in the NHL. It seats 15, uh, fourteen five, I think, mm-hmm. MTS Center in Winnipeg. I think it seats fourteen thousand five hundred people. Keep in mind that Winnipeg is also one of, if not the smallest markets in the NHL. I think only 400,000 people live in Winnipeg, and they sell out every game, right? They, yeah. they, they could sell out a 20,000-seat stadium very easily, right? Um, I think the size of those venues, I think it will remain relatively constant. Mm-hmm. Maybe a slight decline. I don't see 15,000. Uh, part, part of the reason I don't see 15,000 is because, like you mentioned, the concert sure. aspect, uh, especially for one-night-only events, you know, selling 20,000 seats for a hot-ticket concert, not all that hard to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see that number going down all that much. But baseball, pfft, absolutely. NFL, 50,000? That seems sounds about like, right to me. Seems like a good number. Yeah. But yeah, venues are shrinking. And Chris Lee told you first. <laughs> he warned you all. <laughs> right. And soon they'll have food courts in them. Yeah. I'm, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We're going to save these episodes for like 20 years from now. Like, I told the you. internet doesn't forget. That's I know. That's a nice thing. No, it doesn't. I'm staking my claim to we're not going to have parking. We're going to have small venues. 24-7-ish What is it? 20, 2025, owning a car will be, what, what was the what was the phrase that they used in that article? It'll be a quaint memory? Something along those lines. That might be a little fast, but it's it's coming. I was promised a Jetsons car by 20, <laughs> 2020, and we don't have that yet either. <laughs> right. So. All right. Well, you've heard it here first. No more cars by 2025, right, Chris Lee? Uh, that's too soon. But we're going to be headed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports (laughs) Business Commute here on the program. The Sports Business Commute is hosted by myself, Michael Minkus, Christopher Lee, and Daniel McIntosh. The latter two are professors at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week for the final episode of the Sports Business Commute.